brave, how to live courageously in a risky world. Flynn, I want to welcome you to the next chapter experience. I know we're going to go deeper into your story, but I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, me too, Jeanette. I've been looking forward to this for quite a while. I've been trolling you. I'm sure you can't possibly know that because none of us know who's really watching, but you're such a brilliant lady. I've listened to your podcast, looked at some of the stuff you put out there. And so this is one of the ones I've been really excited to be a part of. So thank you for having me on. It's my pleasure. My pleasure. As I was reading your book, of course, I started with your forward written by Howard. When I was reading that, I said, who is this person? Who is this person? I was very much struck by his words of wisdom and encouragement. So I'd like to actually start there. Can you tell me how all that happened with you meeting him and him actually writing the forward on your book? Yeah, I'm glad you asked me that. I don't really get into that hardly ever. I think I've done 50 interviews and you're the first one to ask me that, believe it or not. It's funny because I drink a lot of Starbucks coffee, but that's not how come I hooked up with Howard. It was in the podcast world, believe it or not, indirectly. Okay, so we're going to have to go back to, this is roughly November of 21. And it was before I'd even, I'd thought about writing a book, but hadn't even come close to setting out to do it. And what happened was my wife was listening to a gentleman named Ed Milet, who you may be familiar with. Oh yeah, I am familiar with Ed. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't really into the podcast world at all at that point. It's not that I'd never listened to one, but just wasn't my thing. And so she told me about, I just listened to this interview with a guy named Howard Bihar and he's really into servant leadership. I think you would really love to listen to him. And he's the former president of Starbucks. I'm like, okay. And I listened to it and servant leadership is one of my things that I really love to talk about and love to implement and help people implement. So I love the interview. What was crazy was at the end of the interview, you know, how we all the hosts give their guests an opportunity to, hey, how can people connect with you? And Howard gave out his phone number and his email. And I remember thinking, are you serious? That's even Ed Milet made a comment. I can't remember what he said, but he said something like, okay, Howard, that's a first or something like that. I'm not one of those people that gets easily starstruck. And I've actually had to teach myself to be more willing to reach out to people at certain times. So I was not about to call him, but I did log his phone number, which is going to be key here in just a second. And then of course I did take down his email and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to send him a really brief email and just thank him for everything that he said. Cause I, I really felt like the things that he talks about to this day are just, man, they're timeless and they're so powerful. So I wrote him a really short email. And in the email, I had launched Big Bull Brave, my transformational development company. It was brand new. I hadn't hardly done anything with it yet. But I just, I was like two or three sentences, Jeanette. It wasn't much about I lost my son and it inspired me to do this. That was about it. And the thing was, is Howard promised at the end of his podcast that if you sent him an email, he would respond. So I thought, all right. So I sent it. Didn't ask him for anything. I just sent it. And so three months go by and I actually was sitting at my office table at the time. It was a different spot and I was sick. I wasn't feeling good. I thought, Howard Bihar never got back to me. And I wasn't angry about it, but I just thought in the past, I never would have reached back out. It's just kind of how I am. And I'm not saying that's good or bad, but I just thought, you know what? I'm going to reach back out again. And who knows why? So I just sent him another quick email said, I'm sure you got inundated with emails and it probably got lost at sea. It was a very kind, again, just a few sentences said, but you did promise you would get back to me and you didn't. So I just thought you should know. And so here's where it gets really funny, Jeanette. I hit send. This is not an exaggeration. Within three minutes, 
my phone rings. And as I told you, I did put his phone number in my phone. And of course it says Howard Behar. And I'm thinking, no way. So I answer the phone. I'm like, hello. <laughs> like I was expecting to hear from Howard Behar. And if you've never heard his voice, let alone had a conversation with him, Howard is a very kind man, very soft-spoken, a very gentle, grandfatherly kind of voice. So he says, Clint, I am so sorry. And he goes on to profusely apologize apologize for not getting back to me. And of course, I just laughed about it. But ultimately what happened, Jeanette, was he, actually, I'm glad we're talking about this because someone needs to hear this. He asked me a question I wasn't prepared to answer. At the end of the call, which was brief, it was 10, 15 minutes. He asked me a little about Big Bull Brave and he asked me, have you written a book yet? And then gave me a couple of reasons why he felt like I should. And then at the end of that, he said, so Clint, what can I do for you? And I was stunned, ill-prepared, wasn't ready to answer the question. And honestly, it, it just all happened within my brain within milliseconds, but I was almost embarrassed, to be honest with you. I was thinking, holy cow, how am I not prepared to answer this question? So I was just very honest with Howard. I just said, Howard, I'll just be honest. I didn't expect you to ask me that question and I'm not ready to answer it. So I said, the one thing that comes to mind is I feel like, and I'm just paraphrasing, I don't remember my exact words, but I just said, because of this last push you've given me, I am going to write the book. So if I write it, will you read it? And he says, I will. I said, okay, great. And so then we hung up and then it drove me nuts. This is another part of the story that very few people know. It drove me nuts that I had Howard Bihar, the president of Starbucks, who blew them up from what was, I think, 28 stores when he started to over 1,500 worldwide. He's the one who launched Starbucks internationally, obviously with the help of Howard Schultz and, and their CFO, but he was the guy, right? And I'm thinking, all right. So the next day I called him up and he sounds surprised to have me call so soon. And I said, all right, Howard, I have a question for you. Could we do a call maybe once a month and could you mentor me? And again, he was very kind, very polite. And he ended up saying, he goes, it's, and it, this is exactly what he said. He goes, everything in my heart wants to do that for you. He says, but I just don't do that kind of thing anymore. That used to be something I did. Now he's more focused on some other things. He's still part of a board, but he's a grandfather and all this stuff. And he says, but if you ever need anything, like you get in a pinch and you really need something, then you have my number, call me and I'd be glad to help. And that was fine. I was very thrilled with that. So I wrote the manuscript and once it was finished, I sent it to him and I asked him, would you follow through and read it? And so he said, yes. And then I gave it some time because obviously that's as you've written, how many you've written? At least one, one, just the one. Okay. Yeah. One, 10 doesn't matter. It's a little bit of an ask for endorsements and stuff like that because they do have to take time out of their busy schedule to read your stuff. And so I gave him some time and then I reached back out and I said, okay, I have a question. Would you be willing to write the forward? And he agreed. And the rest is history, as they say, but it was funny how it all came about. But I'm telling you, and this is what I want to emphasize to your listeners since you asked me that is I had to break that old mindset that I used to have of one fear of asking people, especially people I consider to be significant, and then a willingness to follow back up if someone doesn't follow through on their end of it. Absolutely. In fact, I experienced that very same thing a couple of months ago. I had a conversation scheduled with Clint Author, celebrity mm -hmm. entrepreneur, and I'm sitting on Zoom, just me and my dog, Jada Bear, no Clint. <laughs> wow, 
know. I said, we had to set up. He confirmed the appointment. Well, what's the deal? What's the deal? And I said to myself, there's just no way that he would just blow this off. So I started to look around and I realized that I had actually created a contact for him with a phone number. I got the phone number from some other interview that he had done with someone else. And I said, I am just going to text him a message. So I text him. He said, Jeanette, very few people have actually taken me up on making a direct contact. And I am so very pleased that you did. So that was a lesson for me, just yeah. like it was a lesson for you. Yeah, absolutely. And real quick, you just reminded me there was one more piece in between too. I totally forgot. So when I sent him the manuscript and I said, I gave him a couple of months to be able to read it, I hadn't heard back. So I sent another email because I thought, Oh, geez. And it was a little bit of a struggle again. I was thinking maybe he doesn't like it. Maybe he just doesn't really want to do it. All those lies you tell yourself. And sure enough, when I reached back out the second time, literally that day, he answered within an hour or two. And he said, oh my gosh, I am so sorry. I've been out of the country for the last couple of months and I never even got your manuscript. I don't even have it. Can you send it to me now? And, and then he very quickly read through it and agreed and everything went very smoothly. But actually now that you remind me there was two times where I had to battle that stupid fear that we have that someone's rejecting you before you've even had a chance to find out if yeah. they actually did. You know what I mean? I know because I had the same thought when I was thinking about who would write the forward for my book. I approached one of the executives that I'd worked for. Of course, I thought to myself, he's never going to agree to do this and all this. I reached out and he did. I was very pleased. And yeah. It was a great experience. Well, let's talk about your book and share with me a little bit about the journey that you've been on. Our entire life is a journey, right? And I think that's pretty obvious to everybody. It's part of the reason why I actually love what you're doing in the title of your podcast, even next chapter, because I really believe our entire life is just a story and it's new chapter after new chapter. So I say that just to not give your audience an entire origin story. I went through some stuff when I was about 11 or 12 and when my dad had moved out because he had an affair. My mom suffered from suicidal ideation. I had to get through that. Years later, I went through a marriage that did not work at all. It completely failed. I had come out or was still coming out of major drug abuse, meth and heavy drugs and stuff. So I had these blips on the radar and then started to do a lot of personal development. For me, I'm a man of faith. It was around that that I, that I gave my life to God. And so that obviously was a big factor for me as well. So all those things started to happen and I started to have more positive experiences in life. But then when my wife and I got married, we've been we married 20 years on the 20th, actually. So we're about to celebrate. We went through some ups and downs too. You know, we had some really great experiences, but then we had some pretty tough times with two of our three sons were preemies. One was born three months early at one pound, 14 ounces and was in the hospital for two and a half months because she had a pregnancy disease that one or both of them were potentially going to die. So they had to take him early and blah, 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 blah. And so we've had some bumps and bruises along the way. And we've always been very intentional as a family unit to communicate a lot and to support one another and to appreciate one another. So as I get into where we're at now, I want to lay just a little bit of a foundation there because I do think those things definitely played into where we are today in terms of just how we're able to process what we've been through. But what happened is my oldest son was someone who was just really passionate about aviation. From the time he was eight, he wanted to become a pilot. He never let go of it. By the time he was 16, there were some opportunities that had come up that were incredible. Where we live here in McKinney, Texas, our high school has a four-year aviation program, which is almost unheard of. And then he joined a club 
about seven minutes from us at a small airport where the gentleman who is a legend in the aviation industry started this club for teenagers to teach them how to maintain aircraft and eventually get a chance to fly. So all these exciting things are happening for him and we're excited. But 16, he soloed before he even had his driver's license, which was a weird experience. And then ultimately he accomplished his first dream of becoming a licensed pilot at only 17 years old. He was well on his way and taking his instrument rating courses and killing that. He graduated a year early, just an exceptional kid. All my boys are, but an exceptional kid. And he, it's all about getting hours. Once you have your license, doesn't matter what your age is as a young pilot. And so one day on September 23rd of 2019, he went out on what would have been a normal day and flew a friend who was attending the University of Arkansas back to the school which he had made that trip a couple of times before. So that wasn't a new route either, but he was training for night flying, which is what he needed. He needed the hours. And on the return trip, he got about 20 minutes out of where he started in Fayetteville and ran into ultimately the NTSB who does all the investigations and this kind of stuff. Took two years, but we finally got the report that there was an unexpected weather system that came through and it just caused him to become very disoriented. And he flew into a mountainside thinking he was going over it and he lost his life. And as any human being and certainly parent, that's a devastating blow. It has to be getting that phone call. I can't even imagine what that would have been like. Yeah. And it was actually not one either. It was a very long night. We knew he disappeared off the radar about 8 p.m. on the 23rd. And then we won't go into it because there's a lot of layers and it's all that stuff's in my book as far as just telling the story goes. But there was multiple phone calls and looking at our phones and seeing what the news agencies were reporting, which didn't match what we were being told by search and rescue. And it was a very confusing, painful night. And we actually didn't know 100% that he was gone until 3.30 in the morning. So it was pretty brutal. Liam was nine at the time and Joel's my middle son and he was 14. So he was a freshman in high school. Wow. Had just started really. And how did they respond? I know as a family, you responded in a certain way. What kind of care did you have to give to your wife and also to support the two boys? I think foundationally, we established something that first morning that was definitely helpful. And due to the sensitivity of what we're talking about, because we're not the only family to ever suffer a tragedy by any stretch. I do want to stage it first with this to be sensitive to other people's stories. I did have one advantage, not with the pain, but I had an advantage in that I was a pastor for 17 years. My particular role was knee deep in people's lives. I did a lot of coaching, a lot of mentoring, a lot of marriage ministry we did together for many years. Most of that was the crisis marriages. We usually got the toughest cases. And then along the way, people, we had to help through losing a loved one, sometimes a child, sometimes a spouse, whatever. So I at least had an advantage from the standpoint of I had seen certain patterns that seemed helpful. And then I had seen patterns that ultimately ended in destruction which unfortunately, statistically probably outweighs the former. A lot of times marriages don't make it, especially with the loss of a child. So it doesn't help with the pain, Jeanette. So just so your listeners know, anything I'm about to tell you right now is not to tell you, here's how you can lessen your pain. Pain is very real. It's going to be with us the rest of our lives because it was our son. That pain represents the love we shared. So we're not even asking for the pain to go away, but we did have to figure out what are we going to do now that our story has completely shifted. And so with the boys that morning, we had a conversation after I gave them the news and 
just imagine this worst case scenario in your mind of screaming and crying. And that's what it was like. And then once that subsided, I said, boys, we have two choices. We can either choose to focus on Gabriel's death the rest of our lives, just constantly think about how he died and that it was in a plane. What if he'd have never flown? And what if he didn't want to chase his dream of doing that? And what about all these birthdays and Christmases and all the things? If all we did was focused on the death and the loss, we were going to be trapped. We were going to be subject to our pain and be shadows of who we were created to be. But the second choice is we can choose life. And for us, what that meant was I gave you a very quick snapshot of Gabriel. He was an adventurer. He attacked life. He faced fear like we all do, but he never let it get in the way of anything he really wanted to do. And so we had a quick discussion about how he lived. And I said, I really believe the only way we can honor his life is to constantly remind ourselves of how he lived and not do the same things he did, but carry that same spirit and attitude about life that he did. And then along with that, we also had a quick discussion about how we were going to grieve. We we just set the parameters. I said, listen, we don't know emotionally what it's going to look like from day to day and early on, probably hour to hour, but whatever the emotions are, whether it's pain and sadness and crying or whether it's anger and wanting to, now we don't make a habit of cussing in our households. Not like it never happens, but it's not our typical way. But I told them if you get so angry, you feel like you need to cuss or whatever the emotion is, it's okay, Mm -hmm. but we're going to do this together and we're going to do it openly. And so there's some nuances to that that we could get into if you want to later, but those were a couple of, I call it our compass. Those were compasses we set because Because the reality is, Jeanette, none of that has gone perfectly. We've missed it and we've had days where we didn't do it perfectly. And we've had days where we went too long to ask questions of one another or see how we're doing. And we've made mistakes like everybody does. But that compass, those two things, that life mentality and then being okay and communicating a lot with each other through our emotions just kept recalibrating us to our true north. And we keep moving forward. I want to bring forward a guidepost that you established in your book. It reads, we would choose to view our future through a lens of life, not death. And I thought that was extremely profound. It was a courageous decision that would aid our grieving and healing process, a decision we would have to make again and again as the days rolled on. And if you have faced death or any forms of deep disappointment or loss, I tell you this, you have the same two choices. That was very heartfelt. What I like about your book is that you have these chapter reflections, and it really puts you in a space of contemplation and thought. I appreciate how you put that after the different chapters. Thank you. I appreciate that. As an author, I have to give credit where credit is due because you'll be able to relate to this. I was done (laughs) with the manuscript. I thought I was finished. My editor's coming back with what we think is probably the last part of it. And I had written at the end of a few chapters what are now reflections, like name that, but I did not do that throughout the book. And a dear friend of mine, actually one of her photos of Gabriel is in the book, Mira Co. And she's written several books. She said, you really need to write reflections after every chapter. Jeanette, I quit for two months. I didn't do anything because I was so exhausted. I I remember, I remember (laughs) that feeling. (laughs) I just set it down because I'm like, I hated her in a moment. I'm not hated her really, but I was like, because she was right. But I knew it was going to be a much better experience. So I just sat down for a couple months and then I came back and I'm pretty happy with the results. So thank you. Thank you for that. It means a lot. You should be. I have a couple of questions for you. In this thought of being courageous, what are some practical steps 
that a person can take to be more courageous in their day-to-day life, especially if they do have fears. Because right about now, it seems mm-hmm. really risky <laughs> to step outside right. of your door. And sometimes even right. in your own home, it can be risky. So with courage, when I mean, when I say you were created to be courageous is I believe courage is already inside of you. Courage is not this nebulous thing on the outside or something that hopefully one day you can grab a hold on if you never ever need it. I think it's already in your human nature. And we actually see that play out sometimes. Recently, there's so many examples of it, but I saw this story. It was a little real on social media somewhere. And it was this 17-year-old kid who had jumped into an icy lake to rescue a lady and her dog whose SUV, I don't know how, but she's literally halfway submerged in the lake sinking. And he jumps into the water, swims to the SUV, which wasn't very far, but still, this is like icy freezing water, climbs through the back of her SUV because she had lowered the window, pulls the dog out, throws the dog to the shore, then goes back in and gets her before this thing completely submerges. That's courage. But interviews with people like that, what's the question they always ask? How did you have the courage yet? They always say the same thing. I didn't have time to think. That's courage. That's an example of courage already being in us. Now, the challenge with especially the way you frame the question is how do we have courage in our daily lives? Because the truth is we don't run into life or death situations very often, most of us. And so that's when you have to recognize that, okay, I want to believe you, Clint, that courage is in me. That's where you may need some help. You may want to ask the people around you. Hey, can you tell me a time where you've ever seen me show courage? I guarantee you they have. I guarantee you they have. Or you may need a coach or you may need a good friend or you may need somebody that helps you see how courageous you really can be. We've only known each other for however long we've been on this call. And we talked for just a few minutes prior to, and you gave me probably six or seven different things already where you showed incredible courage. And yet I bet you didn't consciously necessarily think of it that way. And so to me, first understanding that courage is already in us, then learning how to be more aware of how we can actually be more intentionally courageous in everyday life. And so I do have these five steps I'm about to give you. They don't all necessarily have to be linear every single time. I think the first couple do. But for me, there's five steps or stages of making a courageous decision. And the first one, and this is going to sound silly, but it's true. You have to know what courageous decision needs to be made, right? Yeah. If you don't know what kind of courageous decision needs to be made, I'm not Mr. Debbie Downer, but you're pretty stuck. (laughs) You're pretty stuck. So until you can sit down and actually think about whatever's going on in your life, whatever's not going well, whatever needs a solution, you need to be able to sit down and go and maybe even write out a list of two or three or four potential courageous decisions. But you've got to first know what are some courageous decisions that you need to make. And it may be, I know you stepped away from a very long, lucrative, successful career. That took you sitting down one day and going, I need to make a courageous decision. Sometimes they're not as vivid as that. Sometimes it may be. I need to talk to my wife about something really tough or my there kids. About There's a responsibility with courage. You have to blend it with being wise and making responsible decisions as it relates to balancing courage is what my point is. So I appreciate yeah. what you're saying about the day-to-day thing. With courageous decisions, you got to figure out what are the right ones that you need to make. And so then I think we can move quickly through the other ones. And my book is a great example in terms of not the book itself, but me writing the book. When I got on a call with Howard Bihar, who's the gentleman who did end up writing the forward for me, when we hung up after I committed to writing the book, I knew I needed immediate 
accountability. So the courageous decision was I'm going to write this book. One of the second things that came about for me was I need accountability immediately. So I literally walked immediately into the other room where my wife was and told her what was going on and that you need to hold me accountable to it. And so that was something that happened very quickly. Now, two and three to me can be interchangeable. That's just the way this story happened. But then the next thing was, she says, okay, as far as timeline goes, right? Because I think courageous decision or part number three is you need to move as quickly as you possibly can. I believe you need to act on that courageous decision right this second unless there are some real reasons why it needs to be delayed, which you may have to have a courageous conversation the next day, whatever. So she said, hey, our friend Michelle is a publisher. Do you think maybe you'd want to have coffee with her? I'm like, great, text her. So she texted her. And what happened is she texted me back 20 minutes later and said, hey, by the way, I'd be glad to have coffee with you, but I'm actually holding a two-day workshop tomorrow and Friday, because this was on a Wednesday, to talk about publishing and how to write a book and all that kind of stuff. Do you want to come? So I cleared my schedule, went through all that, which was huge. There's the making the courageous decision. There's the bringing in accountability. And there is the acting on it as fast as you absolutely can. So those are all parts of making courageous decisions. Do you want to land on that one for a second? <laughs> yeah, the accountability part. That was interesting, your accountability partner. And to hear that it was your wife. Now, she's been through the experience. She's been through the startup company and now approaching this commitment that you're making to write this book. So having that kind of support, it's invaluable in actuality to the finished project. There's no doubt about that. I think no question. And you know what? I'm glad you landed on that real quick. Let's not stop there just yet. Not everybody necessarily is in a marriage. There's obviously a lot of single people out there. Just know that there's someone in your life. Surely everybody has someone in their life that they know they could go to. And if you aren't sure and you don't have someone, then maybe if you belong to a church, you go talk to a pastor or a leader, or if you belong to some sort of a book club or whatever, wherever your social network is, draw in somebody that mm -hmm. knows, because the reality of it is you can't be accountable to yourself, at least not fully. There, there's parts of that you need to handle yourself, but we all need other people involved in the process. No doubt the accountability partner piece is critical. And of course, there are family members, friends who are talented and who are committed to your success as you are and would like to support that. But to have the blessing of someone who's in publishing. So that was a gift right there. Yeah, for sure. I totally agree. That was a gift. In your opinion, what role does vulnerability play in cultivating courage? I think it's absolutely huge. And I think it starts with being vulnerable to yourself. I'm going to use the book again, because that was a really daunting thing for me to take on as a courageous decision. I actually had thought about writing a book for probably 15, 20 years and had many people over the years that just knew not obviously the story that's recent, but just other parts of my life, my story and my ability to communicate and things like that. And so I had lots of people tell me to write a book and Obviously, I never had the courage to do it. And I had all these excuses why. But then when I finally decided to do it, that's when I had to sit down with myself and figure out, okay, what is it that's holding me back? And I think there's a lot of ways you can do that. But one of the simplest ways to bring out the courage in you is to write down, okay, I call these just the what ifs. And you can do this in either order. I prefer to go, what's holding me back? So what if no one wants to read it? What if 
I'm not able to write it. Like somehow I just never finish this thing. What if I do write it and five people like it and no one else? And for me, another one was not so much what if, but does the world really need <laughs> another book? That was some of the different things that were actually just fear disguised as what seemed like reasonable questions, right? And so then I had to turn around and flip the script. And this is what I think we can all do. It's a simple exercise. Flip the script. What if I can write this book? What if this book actually ends up being amazing? What if I sell a million copies? What if I don't? But, and this is something actually Howard Bihar, the night that I made the decision to write the book, the best advice anybody gave me was from Howard. And he said, I don't want you to write it like you're trying to write a bestseller. I want you to write it as if you're talking to one person and you're just trying to help one person, which is what I did. And I've had a lot of people tell me that's how they felt reading the book. And so that was another piece. What if it only reaches one person, but it radically transforms their life? And so to me, those are the things you have to take these, these fears that keep us trapped and they're embedded in lies about outcomes that have never even happened yet that probably will never happen, right? And instead flip it to the other side, which is, man, what if I decide to start my own business and it's very successful? And what if I end up being able to hire a hundred people and increase the economy and make other people's lives better and whatever it is, what if? And I think those are really simple steps that can be a spark plug to get you going. Absolutely. I, I had that thought as well. <laughs> that you know what? There are thousands of podcasts, thousands. And uh, you have this thought, what if no one's interested in the top? What if they're not interested in hearing this, that type of thing? And you just have to to make a decision that what you're doing has value. And even if it lands on one person and it's made a difference, it eventually will have a ripple effect like your book. You know, I would definitely recommend this book for anyone who is contemplating the challenges of life, especially as it relates to grief and death and how to continue on. Thank you for saying that because I want, I want to point something out. I Even the examples I just gave you about being courageous, I use the book just because it's easy. It's an easy example, but this goes so far beyond writing a book. It doesn't have to be you starting a business or writing a book. It really has to do with the way you deal with your relationships, your marriage, all these different things. The book itself is not a grieving book because when you get through the initial part of our story, which I'm using as an example, and the inspiration of my son's life, because he was an inspirational young man, it's really more of a manual of here's how we just keep growing and keep moving forward in our life, whatever the loss is. Because I want to say this to anybody out there, a lot of times when people hear my story, and if they haven't lost a child in particular, then you hear something like, oh, what you've been through is so much worse. I, I don't, there's no need for that. There's no need for any kind of comparison. Somebody could be listening right now and you suffered a divorce after a 25-year marriage, or you may have started a company and you were thriving and then COVID hit and you lost everything. There's so many forms of loss, right? And so I just want to be clear that what we're talking about here is learning how to respond to the gut punches of life because we all get them. And the thing about death, just to finish but what you sort of just add on to it, I should say, is the other thing about death is what it can do. When you experience a death, you kind of have two choices. It can totally paralyze you or it can become so real that you really get intentional about, I'm not guaranteed tomorrow. And I was aware of that before, but now this has happened and it's just so vivid now to me that I'm going to be much more intentional day to day with 
the way I spend time with my bride, with my kids, with my extended family, with my coworkers. I want to be a little more kind. Think about this. How many relationships, marriages and friendships and with coworkers have been shattered because we didn't have the courage to have tough conversations? No, don't. I just had this conversation last week with Carrie Ann Powell about crucial conversations the ability to have crucial conversations with not only business associates, but also with other people. In retrospect, she realized that she had to be better at having those critical or crucial conversations with leaders so that they can make the right kind of decisions that they need to make if they really want to grow and move forward. So in fact, the crucial conversations were not easy to have. That's why they take courage (laughs) to bring it back to full circle. Can I ask you a question? I'm really curious. You were a leader, you were a mentor. So clearly I don't even have to ask you. I know you ran into all kinds of different conflicts and people that were challenged with one another. What was your experience with once people took the time and we can call it critical conversation, courageous conversation, whatever, and took the time to actually learn something about the other person's story that they were in such conflict with? What are your thoughts on that? It's an interesting question because I have a business relationship with one of my former coworkers. And when we first met, he was in a lot of conflict about his career. He was projecting a certain energy. His narrative was always very negative. And eventually one day I just said, you know what? It's time to change the narrative because you are so capable. You are just so capable. In fact, you're better than some of what others are considering to be the best. I have so much respect for you. But he wanted to tell his story. Well, we've heard your story, honey. (laughs) It's time to create another narrative. Let's flip the switch. Let's yeah. turn the light on and let's shine the light on who you are and what you're capable of doing. And that's what we did. Awesome. Even after I've left the company, we are still friends. We still call each other, check in with each other. I love it. I absolutely love it. I love that. I think there's sometimes where there are people who are hesitant to tell their story. And I think once they actually tell it, people tend to have a little more compassion or grace. But like you said, eventually you have to take action, right? You have to make some changes. So I loved the way you frame that with them and work with them. And to me, that's the ultimate test of a coach is a coach. And this is one of my processes. I love to first ask people to tell me their story. That's one of the ways I always start. Tell me their story. Tell me about their life. And in that, you almost always hear some key words and they're usually negative. They're toxic self-speak, right? And then once they get that all out, then you can begin to talk to them. Okay, who do you really want to be? And then you can begin to formulate a plan and take some steps. And as you did, you had to have some grace along the way because nobody's perfect and we still fall. What a great victory. We have this term we used to use called leadership courage and mentoring up. And sometimes your leaders are open to it and other times they're not. And you have to figure out which ones are open to it. But these are all, you know, everything you've been saying too, is those are all exercises in courage. And here's the beauty of what you just said in my mind. And that is, man, maybe it didn't work every time, (laughs) but if you didn't have the courage, it never works. Yeah. It's just like you miss every shot you don't take. Yeah. As we start to wrap up this conversation, Clint, let's talk about what's next for you. What are you working on? What would you like our audience or our listeners to know about the work that you're doing? What my dream is, I'm really trying to create a movement. And when I say that, I'm not trying to create a movement of my own because I really believe 
to really change the world. It takes collaborating with a lot of other people or sometimes even supporting people that are doing something in a different way than you are and not necessarily having them come on board with you. But my movement is I truly want to inspire courageous humans to inspire lives. And for me, what that means is I think so many people out there love to hear an inspiring story, right? Some of these podcasts wouldn't exist if that wasn't the case, but that's not enough. At the end of the day, when I'm gone, I want, first of all, my eulogy to me, I want to be all about what I did for people and how I made them feel, not a list of accomplishments or a bank account. And those things are important to me too, don't get me wrong. But for me, it's more who was I and how did I make you feel? But with these people that are so enthralled with inspiring stories, man, what about your story? And so my entire mission is to use our story examples. Even in my book, there's four other human beings in there that I share their stories that are all just amazing. And uh, the goal for me is that you go from being inspired to living like someone who's an inspiration and then continue to pay it forward and pay it forward. So I really want to build a community of people that, again, aren't necessarily doing all the same things, but just are willing to be courageous and do something that inspires others to do the same thing. So that's my mission on a 10,000 foot level. What I'm doing is I have speaking engagements that I do, whether it's in the corporate realm. I mentioned earlier, I was a pastor for 17 years. So I have different talks that are more suited for that kind of a setting, but I do that as well. And then I'm getting ready to launch a podcast, which will be called Courageous Conversations with Clint Hatton. And it's this kind of thing. I want to have conversations and it's not, I'm sure you feel similar to this. I'm more than willing to have very famous people on my podcast podcast. But to me, that's not the litmus test. So famous, not famous doesn't matter. I want to value people's stories that have overcome some really difficult challenges and not just become a commercial success, if you will, but that there's someone who actually is compassionate and is doing something to change the world. To change the world, yeah. Change the world, to spread love and push out so much of this hate and all the things that come out of that Mm -hmm. that's really plaguing our planet right now. I appreciate that. And I'm looking forward to your podcast launching. I invite you to reach out to me anytime. I've enjoyed our conversation today. Don't be a stranger. Thank you so much, Jet. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Chapter Experience. If you have already subscribed, rated, and left a review, or shared this podcast with a friend, many, many thanks. For questions, comments, or feedback, reach out to me at Jeanette Lissette at nextchapterexperience.com. We'll be back with more conversations, so until then, keep that fire burning.